Well, this morning, we're going to start out with uh, 1 Thessalonians. That's Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian community. We're going to migrate to a few other places. We're going to finish up in 1 Thessalonians once again. But that's only if I don't lose my place. If I lose my place, Lord only knows where I'm going and where I'm going to wind up. But I'll try and stay on track. And I'll know I lost, lost my place by the looks on your face. So, having said that, we're going to, in the first book of Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 13, it's written, And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Right in the beginning it says, and for this reason. Well, what is this reason? For, to find out what this reason is, you have to look at the previous verse, 12. It says that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom of, and glory. So Paul's writing his first letter to the, mess, uh, the Messianic community in uh, Thessalonica. And he visited there with Silas. If you remember that, uh, that would be about the year 51. And that little journey is found in Acts 17, verses 1 through 4. Now, Thessalonica was a coastal city in the capital of the Roman province Macedonia. It was a prominent seaport, and its inhabitants enjoyed commercial success, as do most seaports, and its population was estimated to be about 200,000 people at that time. That's a considerable population. It still survives today, but by the name Salonika, and that's a country of Greece. And prior to World War II, it had the largest Jewish population in Greece. However, I digress. Going back to Acts chapter 17 and verse 1, we know that there's a significant Jewish population there. There was a synagogue there. And from Acts chapter uh, 17 verse 4, it says, We know there was a multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women who became believers in Yeshua after hearing the Apostle Paul reason with the worshipers in the synagogue. The Apostle Paul went to the synagogue every Sabbath and he was teaching and people were coming to know the Lord Yeshua as their Messiah. So how does it happen that a multitude of Greeks became God-fearing in the first place? Well, perhaps they became disenchanted with Greek paganism and the belief in a multiplicity of gods. And they were attracted by the ethical monotheism of Judaism. Now, I say ethical monotheism because that's a nice phrase, pretty fancy. Ethical. Ethical because God established a system wherein people were to be treated humanely, where equal justice for all prevailed, where even the person on the lowest rung of the social ladder had the same rights as the person on the highest rung of that same ladder. Equal justice is in our 14th Amendment. A little segue at this point, if you allow me. You've heard talk about equity. Well, equity in getting a job, equity in entering college, equity is not equality. 
Many in our government would have us think so, but we must be on our guard whenever we hear about equity. Equity is not equality. Equality is sameness of treatment. Equity is proportional fairness. So trying to put this thing in perspective, I want to use this example, form this mental picture. You have people of different heights are using boxes to look over a fence. Equality is if all the boxes are identical, all the same size. Equity, proportional fairness, is if the boxes are different sizes to accommodate the different heights of people. So everybody gets to see over the fence, but that's just kind of like a mental picture. Everything is same and everything is not. There's equity, I'm sorry, there's equality in scriptures in Exodus chapter 30. See, Moses is commanded to take a census and everybody over 20 years old is to give an offering to the Lord of a half shekel. The rich are not to give more, the poor are not to give less. Everybody gives an equal amount regardless of their standing. There's equality. So then the second part, second word of that phrase, monotheism, just the belief that there's one God. God established where he would be worshipped, when he would be worshipped, how he would be worshipped, and who would worship him. See, without divine intervention, mankind would and did invent a Roman system wherein people were not treated humanely. Equal justice for all did not prevail. And the social ladder had as many rungs on it as there were different classes of people. There was no equal treatment. Well, life wasn't so simple back then. The Greeks worshipped a multiplicity of gods, and they could easily fit Yeshua in as one more god. If you remember, when Paul was in Athens, he was in the marketplace every day talking to people about Yeshua, and he was brought to the Areopagus to further explain this strange deity that he was preaching. They were, they were not hostile toward him. On the contrary, they were open to his teaching. This was a strange God that he was proclaiming, and it didn't fit into their gods, if you would. Okay, uh, the Areopagus, that, it's a nice fancy word. It just means the hill of Ares. It was a hill in Athens where the tribunal met. So I'm going to go back to uh, Acts chapter 17 and just read a couple of verses here to put this all in perspective. So remember, Paul is before the tribunal, and they want to know what he's proclaiming. What is this new God? And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he goes on to proclaim what Yeshua is and does. And so he also says, even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul establishes this connection with them right off the bat by saying, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. He could have said something derogatory like, you know, you're a bunch of idiots, you're worshiping all these idols, but he would have lost the connection. He had to keep that connection. He's addressing a, a group of people that have quite an influence in that community. So he says something 
that, that's pleasing to him, tickles their ears, if you would. You see, the Greeks didn't want to miss any god, so they had an altar to this unknown god that Paul happened to find as he was walking through their altars. On their altars were statues of their god. You know, you have Hermes, Apollos, Cupid, Diana, to name a few. But they didn't have a statue to the unknown god. I mean, how could they? They didn't know who he was. They didn't know what he looked like. They couldn't invent him because he was unknown to them. So Isaiah, since we're talking about idols, Isaiah says something about idols, about how they're made and the work that goes into it. He says how a person will take a tree, cuts it down, uses part of it to heat his food, to keep himself warm, and then with the other part of the same tree, he makes an idol and he worships it. This boggles my mind, but that's the way some, some of it is. And Psalm 15, Psalm 115, I should say, describes an idol. It says they have mouths, but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. Noses, but they can't smell. Feet, but they can't walk. Hands, but they can't feel. And they can't make a sound. But if you worship them, you become like them. So Paul, he knows this, and he proceeds to tell them about this unknown God. He says, I'm going to tell you about this altar that you have to the unknown God, so you don't have to be ignorant any longer. And he continues to develop his thesis, and he even uses a quote from one of their own poets that says, for we are also his offspring. He still is holding their attention, and he's proclaiming this unknown God to them, the God we know as Yeshua. Some believed, and two names are given. One is Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. Well, why these two? They were prominent members of the society, I suspect. Dionysius means of the god Dionysos. Remember I mentioned the Areopagus earlier? A function of that was to hear civil cases and pass judgment on the offenders. Dionysius was a judge on that court. His conversion was indeed a significant event. He's sitting on that court, he's now making decisions using a different paradigm, if you would, knowing that he's now heard and come to believe in the Lord Yeshua. Damaris, however, it, the name means gentle, but I haven't found anything that would cause her name to be mentioned. Was she the wife of Dionysius? I don't know. Um, however, Luke, who is the writer of the book of Acts, does like to mention the names of significant people. To us, it's lost. But to those people back then, 2,000 years ago, it was pretty significant. Well, I took a little diversion there, if you hadn't noticed. Uh, and we talked about what Paul did in Athens. So now we're going back to Thessalonica. He was there maybe three or four weeks. He had to leave. Why did he have to leave? Because the Jews were causing an uproar. So away he had to go. That's written in the book of Acts. What happened there? It says, but the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. So 
they really stirred up some, some action here against Paul. But there were some good things that happened. Paul teaching in the synagogue, we read, we heard, or rather, I'll read now. Um, and, and Paul, some, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with the great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. I mentioned that earlier. So Paul's preaching in the synagogue caused some to accept Yeshua. Paul's preaching in the synagogue also caused the Jewish community to, to uh, go into an uprising. From Thessalonica, which he had to leave, he went to Berea. So why did he go to Berea? He found a much better attitude there among the Jews. And it's written in the scripture here that they were more noble-minded. They received the word with eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily. Everything was going good until the Jews found from Thessalonica found out about it. And uh, you guessed it. They came, they agitated the crowds, and Paul was in trouble once again. However, many of them believed. Prominent Greek men and women were becoming believers in Yeshua. <clears throat> well, he goes to Athens and we saw the impact there. He goes on to Corinth. He stays there about a year and a half. And it's from there that he writes the first and second letters to the Messianic community in Thessalonica. Those new believers in Thessalonica were mixed lot. They were Gentiles and Jews. They had to blend together to form this Messianic community. Probably strive together is more like it because they were the Jews and the pagans that had to, had to come together, put aside everything, and focus entirely on Yeshua. So they had to strive together to keep Satan from destroying what was just built. And Paul, who was the glue that held them together for a while, he was gone. So how much information can he impart in four weeks that would keep these folks from way different backgrounds together? Well, apparently it was enough that they wanted to hold it together and strengthen that bond that brought them together. And, and the bond was Yeshua. <clears throat> so Paul goes away, Timothy comes in, and he stays there, and he writes a report. That's what prompts the letter. Timothy's report was very positive, and Paul's letter is warm, and he commends them to, for staying steadfast under these afflictions. And he exhorts them to still excel more in their walk as believers. And he consoles them concerning their loved ones who have died in Christ. And their faith is stable, but they need to be on guard so they don't lose what they have. And his exhortations and instructions begin in chapter 4 in that first letter to Thessalonians, uh, first 12 verses, which I'm not going to read, but in there he reminds them of his previous teachings on sexual and social matters. So where have we seen something similar? Previous teaching to Jews and Gentiles about sexual and social matters. Well, I think that we should go back to Acts 15, which is really where it, it focused, if you would. So we'll go back to Acts 15. <clears throat> that was where there was a debate. You had Jews coming to Messiah, 
Gentiles coming to Messiah. And there was a debate over what are we going to do? How are we going to handle these people, these, these Gentiles, if you would, that are coming to Messiah? So the believing Pharisees, if you would, wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised and have them obey the law of Moses or the Torah. There was nothing wrong with that, is it? But it was having them obey the Torah as they saw it, not as the Lord designed it. And in verse 7 it says, and after there was much debate, and I'll bet there was much debate, but Peter, who was there at the time, puts this whole thing in perspective. And he says, God made no distinction between us and them, Jew and Gentile. Both are saved through the grace of the Lord Yeshua. And significant in this passage in Acts 15 is verse 10. <clears throat> now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Wow, so why impose something on them that we can't even live up to? Interestingly enough, the result of that debate was verses 19 through 21, which I will read because it's, you have to keep your mind refreshed in these things. Uh, it says, Now therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. For Moses, from every generation, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. Wow, that is so powerful. So why is he reminding them of this previous teaching on the sexual and social matters? That's because the Gentiles lacked the moral upbringing in the Mosaic law that the Jews had. So how do they overcome this lack of moral upbringing? Just as I read, you abstain from certain things and you go to the synagogue every Saturday and you hear the Torah and you learn from it. Small increments every week, but over a long period of time, you can blend together better. They, the Gentiles, have to resist the pressures of the pagan society that they're coming out of. Not only are they coming out of, but they also have to live within it. And they grew up with it, so it would be entirely difficult for them to give it all up. <clears throat> now, those Thessalonian believers must have had some concerns about life after death because in Paul's letter, he abruptly changes the topic to what happens after life on this earth is over. Let me turn there to find Thessalonians again here. Here we go. <clears throat> he comforts them with the assurance that all who die in Messiah will be resurrected at his coming. He says, we who are alive will hear a shout, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the shofar, and then things happen quickly. He doesn't say it quite that way, but things happening quickly. He said, the dead in Messiah will rise, and then we who are alive shall be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. Hallelujah. He says, comfort one another with these words. Believers have been comforting each other with these words for 2,000 years, and we're still doing it every week. We comfort one another with these words. 
Paul's mention of the Messiah's return to encourage believers leads to his description of the coming day of the Lord. He says, the Lord will come like a thief in the night when people think they are at peace and safe. And like the Thessalonians who anticipated this day, we are also to be on the alert and self-controlled. Self-controlled, some of your translations say sober. Okay, and we like they are sons of light, destined for salvation and not wrath. That is encouraging. We have a higher calling. And now, as Paul prepares to close his first letter to the Thessalonians, he has a few more words of instruction for them. They're short comments, and they almost appear like an afterthought as you read them. He says the main purpose for the letter is over, and just before he signs it, he has some thoughts that come to mind. So think of yourselves if you write a letter, you know that the postman is coming, you want to share a few quick thoughts in mind, so you, you quickly jot down a few things before you put your letter in the mail. Well, he's, he's got these things on his mind that he has to share before he closes his letter. And some of them is, appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Now, who are these folks? Your uh, pastor, rabbi, elders, teachers, or some. Says, he says, live in peace with one another. You know, disagreements are going to occur. We should be able to agree to disagree, and I know you've heard that before. Not everybody's going to be happy, but much of what we argue about isn't really significant. Um, and some arguments are traps. So you have to be careful who you're talking to, why they're setting up this argument, and what will be the end result. Is it truly an argument that you can learn from, or they can learn from, or is it just a trap that they're trying to catch you into? Admonish the unruly is another one that he says. And to do that, we need to know right from wrong, and to do that, we have to study the scriptures. Encourage the faint-hearted. Wow. People will say things like, I don't know if I can hang on until the Lord comes. The faint-hearted. It's up to us to encourage them that, yeah, they can hold on until the Lord comes. Give them some words of encouragement. <clears throat> Help the weak, yeah, he says. Help the weak. We think weak, maybe physically weak, but how about emotionally weak, spiritually weak? Weak. Helps, help these folks. <clears throat> Be patient with all men. Some people take a little longer to see the light than others. So just, just be patient. Slower learners than others. Here's one, don't repay evil with evil. <clears throat> it says, don't hold a grudge waiting to get even. There's a little factoid that I came across as I was looking at this grudge business. Um, the people who have done studies have come up with a woman will hold a grudge about a year and a half. A man, about three days. And you go figure that, okay? <clears throat> so these people who put these facts together came up with that. Anyway, don't repay evil for evil. Seek what's good for one another. Look for the good in everybody. It's there. And rejoice always. Rejoice. Good times, bad times, all the time. 
pray without ceasing. Pray when you're taking a walk. Pray when you're riding in your car. Pray when you're just doing mundane tasks. You can always pray. And he says, give. In everything, give thanks. No matter how tough we have it, somebody's got it tougher. We might not think so, but it is. And don't quench the spirit because it's the spirit who guides us. <clears throat> Examine everything carefully. So don't jump to conclusions. And hang on to the good things and don't do what looks bad even if it isn't. Some of us might remember a song that said, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. That's kind of a nice thing to hang on to there. It should bring to mind all those things that Paul is wrapping up his first letter with. So did it work for the Thessalonians? Uh, perhaps a little too well. You see, three months later, he had to write the second letter to the Thessalonians because some in that congregation decided that if the coming of the Lord is imminent, let's give up our jobs and wait for him. Now, how have we heard that before? They overreacted and had to be set straight. But how many times in our lifetime have we heard the Lord's coming back on such and such a day? People did quit their jobs. People did give away their possessions. They stood on a hilltop at the appointed time waiting for the return of the Lord. And you know what happened? He didn't happen. So where are they? Maybe they're on the hilltop still waiting for him to come back. But... Uh, that was them. They were fooled into thinking the scriptures were saying something that wasn't there. They came to the wrong conclusion and or by themselves or by the false doctrines of others. So let me encourage you with these words as I close. The Lord is coming back and we will hear a shout and the sound of the shofar and things will really get excited, will really get exciting at that time. So search the scriptures, be steadfast, and hang on, because it's going to be a ride. So God bless you all, and thank you for the opportunity to come here and share a few thoughts from the book of Thessalonians. And so I'll now turn it over to our cantor, Dave, to do the uh, Kaddish. Thank you.